This is Juliet from Temecula, California, and you are listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. Thank you, Roseanne, for all that you do. California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. You know there is a little bit more to making a podcast than just talking into a mic and hitting publish. You need more than that. And I'm talking about a reliable hosting service so your time can be spent working on your show. You also want accurate download numbers. You want to see the audience that you're reaching, and you're going to want a web page that is simple and easy to work with. That's why I choose Blueberry. With its simple media hosting and fully integrated WordPress website, it can't get any easier. So if you host a show or if you're thinking about starting one, visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to give Blueberry a try for a month for free. Blueberry's support team will be right there every step of the way to help you migrate over so you won't lose any of your subscribers in the process. And if you're brand new to this, they can get your new show up and running. And with a month for free to try it out using promo code DREAM, what have you got to lose? There are a number of ways that you can support California Dreaming. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can spread the word about the show. You can recommend us in podcast and true crime fan groups, and you can leave the show a rating and a review on iTunes or whichever platform you listen to the show on. And if you would like to go a little above and beyond, you can also support the show on our Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to one exclusive episode per month, and there are currently more than 30 episodes that you can binge, so it's a pretty good deal. This week, I'd like to thank Janae L., The Minds of Madness Podcast, Alma, Shelley D., Harper C., Barbara A., Melissa, Brooke L., Aber C., Beth S., Janelle W., Ryan S., and Emma T. for joining Patreon, and I would like to thank Lauren for raising up her pledge to the next tier. And if you are not interested in a monthly donation, you could help with a one-time donation to the show through our PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Every little bit helps in keeping us going and ad-free, so thank you. So I was thinking about the lengthiest amounts of time that people have served in prison the other day, because... You know, that's what I do in my free time, apparently. I looked around a little bit on the internet, and I found a list. The person who was known to have served the most time in prison ever, at any time, is a man named Charles Fassard. He served a total of 70 years and 303 days in Victoria, Australia. He was convicted of murdering an elderly and stealing the man's boots when he was only 22 years old. He died while still in prison at the age of 92. The next longest term in prison is a little more than a year less than Fassard's, which was 69 years and 225 days having been served by Francis Clifford Smith. But there is a little bit of confusion on this one because it appears that his sentence is ongoing, which means he's still alive and is still serving his term. But there is also an end date listed, which is January 11th, 2020, which was about 10 days or so ago. 
So I looked around and I could not find a single article reporting that Smith had passed away. So as of right now, I have no idea if he's still incarcerated or perhaps he's been given a compassionate release or if he is in fact dead. But as it stands, Smith is the longest serving inmate in the United States and the second longest serving inmate ever. And if he's alive, he is the oldest prisoner in the United States right now. He had originally been sentenced to death for killing a night watchman at a yacht club in 1949, but his sentence was commuted to life in prison in 1954, about two hours before he was set to be put to death. The inmate who holds the distinction of being the longest serving inmate in the United States whose sentence actually ended in him being released was Paul Geidel. He had been incarcerated for a total of 68 years and 245 days. So his story is kind of interesting. He was born in April of 1894 in Hartford, Connecticut. When Paul was born, there were only 44 states in the United States. He had somewhat of a rough childhood. His dad died in 1900 when he was only five, and from there he was relegated to living in an orphanage. When he was 14 years old, he ended up dropping out of school and taking a variety of jobs working at hotels in both Hartford and New York City. On July 26, 1911, when Paul was only 17 years old and working as a bellhop at the Iroquois Hotel in New York, he robbed and killed William H. Jackson, a wealthy 73-year-old stockbroker. Paul managed to get away with only a couple of dollars, and he was subsequently taken into custody two days later. Eventually, he was convicted of second-degree murder and handed down a sentence of 20 years in prison. By 1926, Paul had pretty much been a model prisoner and was about to come up for his first chance at parole, when he was examined by doctors and they deemed him to be legally insane. At that point, he was moved to the Danamora State Hospital for the Criminally Insane, where he was housed until 1972. He was then transferred to the Fishkill Correctional Facility, where they had the resources to house elderly inmates that would be more accommodating than a prison. And you can imagine that after so many years in prison, that Paul managed to develop some pretty good friendships with those who worked in the prison and those in charge. So much so that they occasionally treated Paul to some leisurely outings, such as baseball games. In August of 1974, when Paul was 80 years old, he was granted parole. But after spending 63 years in prison, the entirety of his adult life, with no surviving family to speak of, he decided that he didn't want to leave because he really had no place to go. He finally left Fishkill in May of 1980 and lived out the rest of his days at a nursing home where he passed away in 1987 at the age of 93. So let's see. The oldest serving inmate who was sentenced as a juvenile to life in prison without parole is Joseph Ligon. He was 15 years old when he began his prison sentence on December 18, 1953, for murder. He has served 66 years and 31 days and counting. Interestingly enough, he turned down a resentencing and a chance at parole in 2016. He was resentenced again in 2017 
and made immediately eligible for parole but turned it down while he continued his appeals. Joseph insists on being resentenced to time served and released without being placed on parole so he can move on from the justice system completely. So, Joseph is still fighting his case today at the age of 81. And the longest serving female inmate is a woman named Betty Smithley. She served a total of 49 years for murder from 1963 to 2012, at which time she was paroled. But there are two ladies who are right on her tail, Leslie Van Houten and Patricia Krenwinkel, who, as of the writing of this episode, have both served 48 years and 303 days and counting for their roles in the Manson family murders. Another year and they both will become the longest-serving female inmates ever. Charles Manson himself served a total of 46 years, 7 months, and 27 days at the time of his death in November of 2017. Some other notable inmates whose lengthy sentences are still ongoing. Well, there's Ed Kemper. He's got 46 years, 71 days, and counting. Mark David Chapman. He has 38 years, 234 days and counting, and he's doing his time in solitary confinement and has been there ever since he pleaded guilty to murdering John Lennon on December 8, 1980. Yolanda Saldivar also holds the distinction for being held her entire sentence, which is 24 years, 297 days and counting, for killing Tejano singer Selena Quintanilla. So, you know I have a reason for bringing all of this up. It's because I want to talk about the longest-serving prisoner in California, which is 57 years, 79 days, and counting. And this is a man who has been around and around in the California justice system as if it were some sort of bizarre roller coaster ride that he can't seem to manage to get off of. And I'm going to tell you about all of his ins and outs and ups and downs and every which ways in today's 129th episode of California Dreaming, the tale of California's longest serving inmate. Our story today begins in 1962. What was going on in the world in the United States at that time? John F. Kennedy was the president, and the country was in the midst of what is known as the Cold War. The embargo against Cuba went into effect. As a result, all Cuban imports and exports were effectively banned. Later on in the year, Soviet missiles were photographed from a high-altitude aircraft being installed in Cuba, subsequently leading JFK to announce to the nation that there were indeed Soviet missiles in Cuba. West Side Story won the Academy Award for Best Picture. Wilt Chamberlain became the first and only person to ever score 100 points in a professional basketball game, and that record still stands to this day, 58 years later. The very first Major League Baseball game was played at the brand new Dodger Stadium. 
The first Walmart opened in Rogers, Arkansas. Marilyn Monroe was discovered dead at the age of 36. The golden age of radio came to an end as television had pretty much taken over, and Johnny Carson became the host of The Tonight Show, a position he would hold for the next 30 years. This period of time also marked the height of the civil rights movement in the United States. There was a great deal of racial tension as African Americans continued to fight for equal rights in this country when it came to schools, housing, jobs, and the integration of public facilities. But where our story takes place, in the farming town of Hanford, California, the racial conflict was not something that the residents of the area really needed to be bothered with. Their livelihoods depended on taking care of the crops and the livestock and the farmland. And if you listen to episode 105 when we covered the Zoot Suit Riots, you'll recall that I talked about African Americans in the South heading north and west during and following World War II for better jobs and opportunities and less racism. California was one of those destinations. And during this time, in a relatively small town like Hanford, everybody knew everybody else. And everyone pretty much got along because there was that one common goal. The farming had to be done, and the kinds of fighting that was going on in other parts of the country, just nobody had time for that. And one of the farmhands who worked in Hanford was an African-American man named Booker T. Hillary. And he worked on a farm a short distance away from the place where the story takes place, the home of the Miller family. The Miller family lived and worked just outside of Hanford, and they operated one of the most essential components when it came to farming. The family oversaw the distribution of water to the local farmers. The Millers were well known in the community as a very hardworking, salt-of-the-earth, God-fearing family. The water canal that supplied the water to the farmers was situated behind the Miller family home, and there was always someone in the house 24-7 to ensure that the water distribution system was in good working order at all times. On the evening of Wednesday, March 21, 1962, the Miller's 15-year-old daughter, Marlene, was at home that evening to keep an eye on things. Her mom and dad had left at approximately 6.15 for the evening as they were attending some night classes, and her brother Walt was at work. The night was quiet and uneventful, and she spent most of the evening working on a dress that she was making for a date night that she had coming up that weekend. The lights were on inside the home, but the window shades were drawn, and the doors were all unlocked. At approximately 8.30 p.m., a woman named Bev Honiger had called the Miller home and had a brief conversation with Marlene. This was the last known communication that anyone had with her. Mom and Dad got home from their night class at around 10 p.m. As they got out of their car and walked up to the house, there were a couple of things that they found to be kind of odd. Even before they got close to the front door, they could hear that the TV volume was turned up really loud, louder than Marlene would normally have it. 
They also saw that the screen on the bedroom window had been removed and left in the grass off to the side. When they finally went inside, they checked the house. They found the sewing machine was still turned on and there was an ironing board that had been set up with the iron plugged in and it was hot. In their master bedroom, they found a sleeping bag on the floor that was normally kept in a cedar chest, as well as a jacket and a blanket also tossed onto the floor. Other than that, the house was empty. Nobody was there, including Marlene. Sensing something dreadful had happened while they were out, they quickly picked up the phone and called the sheriff to report their daughter missing. Deputy O.R. McFarlane was the first officer to respond to the scene, and to him it was immediately apparent that Marlene had met with some sort of foul play. As I mentioned before, the screen from the window leading into her room had been removed and tossed aside. There was a gloved handprint in the dust on top of the TV in her bedroom, which essentially blocked the intruder from being able to gain entry into the home from there. So it was surmised that the intruder made his way around to the side of the house until he found an open door towards the back of the house, which led into the hallway. From there, it is believed he took Marlene by surprise. On the outside of the home, Deputy McFarlane discovered some tire impressions and footwear impressions along the dirt road close to the Miller home, which they immediately took pictures of. The footwear appeared to have been made by boots, and they led away from the house into the dirt road. Now, the next bit of evidence I've seen reported two different ways. One report said that alongside the boot impressions were a set of barefoot impressions. But in the court documents, it was said that there were scuff marks on the ground, which appeared to have been made by someone being dragged across the dirt, and some of the patterns of those drag marks looked as though they were made by a small pair of tennis shoes. It was also reported that they saw a trail of blood that led over the bank and towards the irrigation canal, along with some partial footprints leading that direction, and again the print of a small tennis shoe. Now I have some issues with some of these findings when it comes to the initial search, and I'll come back to that in a moment. So the following morning, a large-scale search of the area was launched and Marlene's brother, Walt, had gone up in a helicopter with law enforcement to scour the area by air. The first member of the media to arrive once the word went out over the police radios that 15-year-old Marlene Miller was missing was a reporter from the Fresno Bee newspaper named Robert Good. He started looking around the scene as well as the area surrounding the Miller home. And as he headed towards the back of the house and made his way a dozen or so yards down the embankment, he could see a body floating in the canal. She was face down in the water, right there behind the home. Walt, who was still in the helicopter, realized that the search for his sister was over when he saw a vehicle pull up to his family home that he described as being a hearse. I don't know if the town didn't have a vehicle dedicated to transporting dead bodies, so they utilized the hearse from the local funeral home, but it's the first time I've heard of a hearse picking up a murder victim. So when Walt saw the hearse, he knew what they were there for. Now back to the evidence that I had a little bit of an issue with. In his interview about this case, Deputy McFarlane clearly stated that he saw bare footprint impressions. But the court document said 
that there were small tennis shoe impressions. Also, if Deputy McFarlane had seen a trail of blood leading to the banks of the irrigation canal, I don't understand why he didn't follow that blood trail and discover Marlene's body himself. She was discovered by a reporter snooping around at the scene, not by police. It's not like the blood trail went in a random direction and then suddenly ended at a road or something where there would be no other real indication where Marlene may have gone or been taken. But the court documents clearly state that the blood trail led to the banks of the canal. There's really only one place to disappear from there, which is into the water. And it bothers me that the media was even allowed to be in such close proximity to the scene that they would actually be the ones to discover the body in the water. But again, this is 1962. These are the mistakes that are made that we learn from and ultimately would shape the way that crime scenes are handled. Marlene was brought to the medical examiner's office so an autopsy could be conducted. There are a couple of conflicting reports here as well, so I will go over both. Marlene had suffered a single stab wound to her chest, though the wound was not rapidly fatal. And because it was discovered that she did have water in her lungs, her cause of death was determined to be drowning. Marlene's hands had been bound behind her back with what looked like a thin piece of rope or string. And the knot appeared to be the type of knot that was frequently used by those who work on farms with livestock. It was a kind of knot that was effective in that it held tightly, but one that could be fashioned very quickly when a farmer is dealing with animals who might be trying to struggle or kick. Now, there was no indication that Marlene had been sexually assaulted, though it is strongly believed that that had been the motive, and I'll talk more about that later when it comes to the condition of her clothing. However, based on other numerous injuries found on Marlene's body, it was clear that she put up a fierce battle for her life, which may have led to her attacker abandoning the sexual assault, opting to stab her and throw her into the canal where she drowned. Now in the court documents, it said that Marlene was discovered about 75 yards west of the Miller home. The first report I looked at said that she was found directly behind the home. In the court documents, it did say that Marlene was stabbed in the chest. However, it provided some additional and some conflicting information. A large pair of sewing shears, which had the name Marlene M. engraved on them, had been left embedded in Marlene's chest all the way up to the handles. And you know that sewing shears are usually pretty big, so that stab wound went deep. The blades of the shears had been thrust down into her chest at a point immediately above the sternal notch, also called the jugular notch. It is the visible dip between the neck and the collarbones. Contrary to what I read in the first report that indicated Marlene's stab wound was not rapidly fatal and she died as a result of drowning, the court documents indicated that the scissors punctured a lung and her death was caused by massive hemorrhaging and shock. The point of those sewing shears were lodged into the posterior wall of her chest cavity. In other words, the scissors stopped short of going through and through. There was a towel and a half-slip knotted around Marlene's neck. And in case you don't know, 
A half slip is an undergarment worn under a dress or a skirt to help the clothing hang properly as it is worn. It protects the skin from fabrics that might be coarse or itchy, or if the skirt is made out of a thin, finer fabric, it helps protect the clothing from perspiration, as well as prevents underwear from being seen through the skirt. And a full slip would be one that hangs from the shoulders and provides that same protection for an entire dress. So that slip was probably going to be worn under the dress that Marlene was sewing at the time that she was attacked, and it was taken and knotted around her neck along with that towel. The cord that was used to bind Marlene's wrist behind her back came from the sleeping bag that was found, removed from the storage chest, and discarded onto the floor. The length of cord had been cut from it. Marlene had one shoe on one foot, and her other foot was bare, so this would explain why both small tennis shoe prints were found as well as a bare footprint found in the dirt outside the home. Marlene's blouse was pulled down around her torso in a manner that essentially pinned her arms up against her body, and her bra was pulled upwards, which exposed her breasts. Her jeans were ripped down the back all the way through to the crotch. There were a number of cuts or nicks on Marlene's body that were apparently made during the attempt to rip her jeans before the final tear was made down the seam. Marlene's underwear was also torn, which exposed her private area. Marlene had bruises on her chin, her back, and knees, which indicated that she was face down, hands bound behind her back, and continued to put up a battle so fierce that her attacker gave up on the sexual assault. There was no trauma or injuries indicating that she had been raped. Investigators canvassed the area looking for anyone who may have seen or heard anything unusual on the evening Marlene was murdered. One young man who went to school with her said that he did notice a car that he didn't recognize parked near her house during the time frame that it was believed Marlene was abducted and murdered. This was about 8.45 p.m., so approximately 15 minutes after that phone call Marlene had answered. And the reason this kid happened to notice the vehicle is because he liked the colors that it was painted, which made it stand out to him. He described the fenders being sort of an aqua or greenish-blue color, and from the hood to the roof and down the trunk were all painted black. He said it was a 1953 Plymouth, and he really liked the way the car looked. A second witness also saw the same car at the same location at approximately the same time. So armed with not only a description of the car located at the scene around the time the crime was committed, they also had those tire impressions in the dirt road. So investigators set out to search for a vehicle that matched the description given by the witnesses. Because it was kind of a unique-looking car, it didn't take long for police to track that black and aqua Plymouth down. Police had spotted it parked in front of the Royal Hotel, which is located in downtown Hanford. Deputy McFarlane made his way to where the car was parked and took a look inside the window, and on the floorboard of the back seat, he noticed a pair of work boots. One of the boots was laying on its side, and when he looked at the pattern on the bottom, it appeared to him to be similar to the tread pattern of the boot impressions found near the Miller home. 
I also forgot to mention that a mismatched pair of gloves were found near the Miller house, tossed off to the side of the road and in some grass that was in very close proximity to the scene of the crime. So back to the car. When investigators ran the license plates, it was revealed that the car was registered to Booker T. Hillary. He was a local farm worker, but it was also revealed that Hillary had recently been released from prison. He had served time for a rape conviction. So the Miller home was situated on the corner of Elder and 10th Avenues, and there is a stop sign located at this intersection. About a half mile away, and that converts to about 880 yards or 800 meters, sits the Ferrera Ranch. And this is where Hillary had been employed at the time of Marlene's murder. And he had been their employee since the previous June of 1961. Marlene herself had been hired by the Ferreras on a number of occasions during the spring of 1962 to babysit for their children. So very recently leading up to her murder. Another witness, a man who worked with Hillary, was interviewed and he reported that he saw him leaving the evening of the murder, driving in the direction of where the Millers lived. And the owner of the farm for which Hillary worked was shown the gloves that were found near the scene of Marlene's murder and he recognized them as a pair of gloves that Hillary owned. Now, both of these witness statements clearly do not add very much at all as to whether Hillary was involved in this. It's very weak. It's very circumstantial. So there needs to be some sort of corroboration here. When the tires on Hillary's car and his boots impressions were compared to the impressions left on the dirt road, they both appeared to be similar. But again, this is circumstantial and investigators knew that. The gloves had been tossed aside along the road and the tire and shoe impressions. Well, Hillary worked in the area. He could have very well driven by there or walked by there. It doesn't mean he gained entry into the Miller home and attacked Marlene. There just wasn't any real evidence that actually placed Hillary inside the home itself. Of course, Hillary denied that he had anything to do with Marlene's murder and even pointed out that his place of employment was just up the road from their home and he drives by there every single day. His car, his tire tracks, his shoe impressions, none of it proved that he had anything to do with her death. And he wasn't exactly wrong, but there was so much stacked against him that he was arrested and charged anyway on the evidence that investigators did have. Hillary pleaded not guilty. At Hillary's trial, the prosecution called a couple of expert witnesses to testify to the evidence found at the scene. One expert who examined the photos of the tire impressions at the scene compared those to the ink impressions taken of Hillary's tires and said that the tire impressions were indeed made by Hillary's car. As for the boot prints, another expert testified that the impressions indicated that the person wearing the boots had walked in the direction of the Miller home and that those prints were determined to be a match to the boots found in Hillary's car. And I'll come back to the boots a little bit later on, too. I mentioned the mismatched gloves that were found tossed into the grass on the side of Elder Avenue near the Miller house. When they were found, they were discovered to be soaking wet. And witnesses were called to the stand 
who were able to link those gloves to Hillary. The right-hand glove was entered into evidence at trial. It was black and had a red Orlon lining. Orlon is a synthetic fiber that is described as soft, easy to wash, lightweight, moth and chemical resistant, they keep hands warm, and the material dries relatively quickly. The gloves appeared to be similar in appearance and size to a pair of gloves sold to Hillary a little bit before Christmas of 1961 from Corel Hicks, so about three months before the murder. Hillary was with Aline Stallworth, who was his girlfriend at the time. She corroborated Corel Hicks's testimony and said that Hillary showed her the gloves and told her that he bought them from Hicks. Stallworth also said that she did not know of any other gloves that Hillary owned that had a red lining like those ones did. About a week before the night of the murder, Hillary told his girlfriend that he had lost one of the gloves, and one of the mismatched gloves found near the scene looked like the glove that he had shown her. So Hillary replaced the missing glove with one that was similar but not a mate to the original glove that he had purchased back in December. That left-handed glove was made of leather and identified as similar in appearance to gloves sold at an army surplus store in Hanford. The store manager testified that Hillary had been a customer of his and that on January 22, 1962, he hand-wrote a sales slip in the amount of $1.29 plus tax and that gloves similar to the glove found at the scene were on sale at that time at his store for $1.29. That handwritten slip was found in the back seat of Hillary's Plymouth when it was searched subsequent to his arrest. Hillary's boss, Joe Ferreira, testified that about two weeks prior to the night of the murder, Hillary had complained to him that he had lost a glove. Hillary showed him the remaining glove, and thereafter, he wore this glove along with a mismatched pair, both of which looked similar to him to those that were entered into evidence. A brown belt was also found in the grass off the side of the road near the gloves, but unlike the gloves, the belt was not wet. Hillary's boss testified that the belt looked very similar to the one that Hillary would wear to hold up his hip boots, which he wore at work. Then the belt did appear to have wear marks in the place where the hip boots would have been supported by this belt. And an expert testified that the marks on the belt could have been caused by supporting the hip boots which Hillary wore frequently at work. I mentioned earlier that Hillary was arrested at the Royal Hotel located in downtown Hanford. Contrary to its name, it is not really all that royal. Based on the pictures I've seen, it's a pretty rundown place. And this is where Hillary was living at the time of his arrest. When his wallet was searched after he was taken into custody, He had one $10 bill and five $1 bills. Marlene's brother testified that the $10 bill, which was pretty crisp and brand new, appeared to be similar to a $10 bill that he had kept in his dresser, which he had discovered was missing. There was also testimony that one of the dollar bills was folded in a way that was similar to the way a bill would have been folded if it had come from his wallet. A mug that he kept in his room that contained nickels was also emptied, presumably by the intruder, and Hillary was found to be in possession of a small coin pouch that contained about 10 nickels, 
among other denominations of coins. Again, this testimony is highly circumstantial, and I honestly don't think that any of this would have been allowed in testimony if this trial were happening today. When Hillary was questioned at the time of his arrest about his whereabouts the evening of the murder, he claimed that he had picked up his girlfriend around 8.30 p.m. and spent the remainder of the evening with her at his hotel room. His girlfriend, Aline Stallworth, corroborated Hillary's alibi, claiming that he did indeed pick her up at 8.30. But then in subsequent interviews to investigators as well as at his trial testimony, Hillary provided a different story. He said that he left the Ferrero Ranch at approximately 8.15 p.m. and drove straight into town. The Ferrero Ranch and the Miller home were located in a rural area a few miles outside of Hanford. As he drove, he said he was driving directly behind the vehicle of a co-worker named Frank Costa. Then he said at about 8.40 p.m., he parked his vehicle across the street from the Royal Hotel and the adjacent Royal Cafe, at which time he went up to his room and stayed for a couple of hours. He showered and he got cleaned up. But the significant aspects of Hillary's alibi had been contradicted by a number of other witnesses. Co-worker Frank Costa testified that while he did drive away from the Ferrera Ranch with Hillary's car behind him, he no longer saw the headlights of his vehicle after he turned the corner of Elder and 10th Avenues, which is the corner where the Miller home was situated. He had slowed down a little bit, he looked back a couple times, and he did not see Hillary's car anymore that night. The owner of the Royal Cafe, which is the restaurant associated with the Royal Hotel, testified that she made it a point to make note of the cars that were parked along the street outside the hotel and the cafe, which she could clearly see from her establishment. And she would do so until about midnight, at which time she would close up. She testified that on the night of the murder, she did not see Hillary's Plymouth parked out in front until close to midnight. The Royal Hotel manager testified that during the evening of the murder, she was seated in her office per usual in a chair that faces the staircase that leads to the rooms of the hotel and at no time did she see Hillary arrive at the hotel and go upstairs to his room. In his testimony, Hillary claimed that at approximately 10 p.m. on the evening of the murder, he went to a laundromat in Hanford and put his work clothes and a white leather jacket into a washing machine. Using a payphone at that location, he called his girlfriend at approximately 10.10 p.m. And then about 10 minutes later, he drove over to his girlfriend's apartment and picked her up. This directly contradicted his first statement to police the night of his arrest that he picked up his girlfriend at 8.30 p.m. He said they went and got some food at a drive-thru and then returned to the laundromat to retrieve his clothing. He left the leather jacket at his girlfriend's apartment and spent the remainder of the evening in his hotel room. The following morning, police found the leather jacket, which was still damp, hanging over a heater in his girlfriend's apartment. Hillary told investigators that the reason why he needed to wash his clothes that night was because he had gotten cow manure all over himself while he was milking the cows at the Ferrera Ranch. But according to co-worker Frank Costa, who milked the cows with Hillary, he testified that he did not see any manure on Hillary's clothing when he left work that evening. 
Joe Ferreira, their boss, also testified that he had never known Hillary to wear his white leather jacket while he was doing farm work, but rather he would hang it in the supply room before going out to work. Then Hillary's girlfriend testified that she was the one that did his laundry for him. The last time she had done his laundry, she had given Hillary his clean clothes back to him earlier on the same day as the murder. She also testified that in the nine months that she had been his girlfriend, she had never known him to take his laundry to the laundromat and wash his clothes himself, and she had never known him to put his white leather jacket into a washing machine. By taking the stand, Hillary subjected himself to cross-examination, and he was made to admit that he had a prior conviction of forcible rape, but he maintained that he was innocent of Marlene's murder. All of the evidence was circumstantial, and there was nothing definitive that connected him to the crime. There were no eyewitnesses to the killing, Marlene's time of death was never established, and his boot prints and tire impressions were away from the house along the dirt road, and that there was no proof that he was any closer than that to the Miller home. But the jury wasn't swayed by any of Hillary's testimony, and they convicted him of first-degree murder. Booker T. Hillary was subsequently sentenced to death. Hillary spent the next several years aggressively appealing his conviction. Those who put him away took issue with this because for years and years to come, he continued to drag the Miller family back into court every single time any of his appeals were heard. His main contention was a lack of evidence placing him inside the house. Of course, the jury is instructed to rely on circumstantial evidence just the same and interpret it how they will when reaching their decision as to whether or not there was reasonable doubt as to Hillary's guilt. Was the evidence enough to place Hillary at the scene of Marlene's murder? Well, the jury believed that there was. Hillary also appealed as to whether or not there was enough evidence to prove that this was actually a premeditated first-degree murder, the crime for which he was convicted. He would claim that there wasn't any direct evidence that established that any element of the crime was made in advance with deliberation or premeditation. Now, in his appeal, Hillary asserted the following. None of the acts enumerated except the thrust of the scissors are sufficient to produce death or contribute in any way to it, and that because of the angle of the entry of the scissors, death here could have been completely unexpected from the thrust. There was no showing that what was done was likely to produce death. Okay, so when I was reading that, I was like, wait, what? There is no expectation of death from plunging those scissors into Marlene's chest, and there was no proof that what was done was going to produce a death, and because of this, there was no premeditation? Not only does that sound completely absurd to me, the idea of plunging a large pair of scissors into someone's chest won't cause death, maybe? But it also kind of sort of sounds like Hillary, in a roundabout way, is confessing to thrusting that knife into Marlene's chest. But the court found that the size of the scissors, which can be as many as 8 inches or 20 centimeters in size, possibly even more, and the location of where the scissors entered her body and the depth that the scissors went into her body, 
along with all of the other circumstances going on related to her death, leave no doubt that the intent was to kill. And the deliberation and the premeditation took place basically between the time he picked up the scissors and then plunged them into her chest. No more time than that is required. The court said the following regarding the other circumstances surrounding the stabbing with the scissors. Booker Hillary parked his car a short distance from the Miller home and approached on foot. He removed a screen from the window in Marlene's bedroom, but could not enter by that means because his way was barred by a television set, which the above-mentioned gloved handprint was later found. There were also bottles on top of the TV that he may have knocked over if he tried to continue entering through that window. He then approached instead along the side of the house until he came to one of the unlocked doors and entered surreptitiously. He then passed the dresser of Marlene's brother, and Hillary emptied the wallet and the coin mug that belonged to the brother. That the defendant seized Marlene while she was absorbed in her sewing and knotted a towel and half slip over her head to prevent her from crying out or identifying him. That he cut a length of cord from the Miller sleeping bag and used it to tie Marlene's hands securely behind her back. That he armed himself with the victim's sewing shears and dragged her outdoors to the irrigation ditch where her body was found. That at some point a scuffle ensued and Hillary plunged the shears deep into her chest. That Hillary must have known that a wound of that severity would likely cause massive hemorrhaging resulting in death. That Hillary thereafter left his victim bound in the water-filled irrigation ditch, where, if she were not already dead from the stab wound, Hillary must have known that death would ensue by drowning. From this extended course of conduct, the jury were amply warranted in finding that the murder of Marlene was deliberate and premeditated. Hillary also challenged that this killing took place during an attempt to commit rape. The appeals court affirmed that the killing committed in the attempt to perpetrate a rape is also sustained by the record. Hillary asserted that there is nothing in the evidence that establishes the offense being a sexual offense, and he stressed the fact that the victim's genitalia were uninjured and apparently argues that an implied finding of attempted rape cannot be sustained unless the evidence specifically shows trauma in the area of the private parts. But the court established that such is not the law. In this case, there is ample evidence to establish that on the night in question, Hillary could plainly see from the road that Marlene was at home alone. That he parked his car at the point where it was seen by witnesses and where its presence was further demonstrated by tire impressions. That he walked from there as indicated by his boot impressions. That he entered the house Hillary subdued Marlene, tied her hands behind her back, pulled her blouse down around her shoulders, pinning her arms to her body. That he pulled her bra upwards, exposing her breasts. That he ripped her jeans down the back and through the crotch. That he tore her underwear, exposing her private parts. And when her body was recovered in rigor mortis, her legs were drawn up and her knees were spread apart. In the light of the foregoing evidence, the people were not required to also prove, more specifically, the reason that the attack was broken off without the hymen being ruptured. 
The record as it stands reasonably supports the jury's inference that Hillary killed Marlene in the course of an attempt to rape her. Hillary also complained in his appeal that there was misconduct on the part of the prosecutor by telling the jury that if evidence showed that Hillary had previously been convicted of a felony, that they can consider that prior conviction in determining the issues of identity and intent. But this turned out to not be the case. It was Hillary's own defense attorney that first injected the fact of the prior conviction by asking jurors questions like, you won't convict him of this crime merely because in the past he's been convicted of a felony, would you? Hillary's attorney also told prospective jurors that if Hillary took the stand, his prior conviction could be used against him for impeachment purposes. The prosecutor, in turn, added this further explanation that in the event that proof of Hillary's prior conduct were to be introduced as evidence of his intent in the present case, the jurors should consider it for that purpose if the court were to so instruct you. Hillary's defense did not object to this in a timely manner. Hillary also asserted in his appeal that the prosecutor in his opening statement to the jury repeated his reference to his prior conviction. In relating the evidence that the people expected to introduce, the prosecutor said, We are going to make an offer of proof that back on November 30th, 1954, Booker T. Hillary, early in the afternoon, went to the home of Adelaide Domingo on 11th Avenue near the intersection of Jackson. And what happened there... And it was at that point Hillary's attorney objected and cited the statement as prejudicial misconduct. This matter was argued and the court ruled that whether evidence of Hillary's prior conviction was admissible was a question of law to be determined at the appropriate time and hence any discussion thereof in the opening statement should be omitted. In compliance with this ruling, the prosecutor gave no additional details of the prior crime but confined his remarks on this point to the brief statement that I will leave the subject with the fact that we do intend at the proper time to make an offer of proof on a fact that the defendant had committed a prior rape. So at the onset of the trial, the court explained to the jury that statements of counsel and other stipulations were not evidence, and formal instruction to that effect was subsequently given. And these admonitions were found to be sufficient to protect Hillary's rights to a fair trial. Hillary had several other points to appeal, things involving the coins that he supposedly took from Marlene's brother's room, a refusal to grant Hillary's trial a continuance so his defense attorney could have some extra time to track down a witness who could testify on his behalf, who the sheriff had been unable to locate to serve with a subpoena, among some other small issues that Hillary was appealing. But another component of Hillary's appeal was this. He pointed out that he is African-American and contended that the court erred in denying his motion to quash the indictment on the grounds that members of his race were systematically and purposefully excluded from the grand jury which indicted him. And it was his contention that no African-Americans had served on a Kings County jury since 1893. The people did not dispute this fact, but introduced evidence based on the census records establishing that in 1960, African-Americans constituted only 5.1% of the total population of the county, and that prior to World War II, the proportion had been less than 1%. 
The judge who denied the quashing of the indictment because of the lack of African-American representation on the grand jury said, In selecting a panel, he always endeavors on each one of those judicial districts to get a good cross-section of people who will be qualified to serve as grand jurors. That he consistently tried to get a distribution of racial descents, tried to get both sex represented, and tried to get occupations from farmers to business people, so it would be a real representative group of people, and that since he took office in 1956, he had not had any African Americans on the panel, not through a lack of desire, but purely through a lack of ability to find any that the court felt would make a proper grand juror. The judge had even pointed out that he had asked Hillary's defense attorneys to suggest the names of some African Americans who might be qualified to serve and had considered selecting one of his suggestions, but he was unable to fulfill the duties required of him as a juror. At the time, the court determined that there was no systematic exclusion of African Americans from the grand jury that indicted Hillary. But that would change some years later. But for now, Hillary's initials appeal would all be unsuccessful. Then a thing happened with the Supreme Court in 1974. The death penalty in the United States was ruled to be unconstitutional, cruel, and unusual punishment. Because of this ruling, every person on death row in the United States had their sentences commuted to life in prison, including Booker T. Hillary. The Supreme Court would end up reversing its decision two years later. However, those who had had their death sentences commuted to life could not be reinstated. So Hillary would continue on with his various appeals and legal maneuvers. Then in 1983, Hillary raised the issue of having no African Americans on the grand jury yet again in another appeal. And this time a judge affirmed the appeal, effectively reversing Hillary's conviction and ordered that he either be set for retrial or he be set free. And this is now some 21 years after Marlene's murder. To the current prosecutor that was assigned to the case, it didn't make any sense. Because to him, if you review the transcripts from the grand jury indictment, it is clear that anybody of any race would come to the conclusion that there was probable cause to indict Hillary on the charges. So this was going to be a huge undertaking for the new prosecutor to be made to retrial, and by the time they would be ready to go to trial, it would be a case 24 years after the original conviction, and it's not going to be easy. The physical evidence on the case was still in storage in the evidence room. The boots, the gloves, the belt, Marlene's ripped jeans, all of those things. However, 21 of the original witnesses who testified at the first trial were dead. So the investigator on the case had to sit and read hundreds and hundreds of pages of their testimony, including all the transcripts from Hillary's various appeals over the years to get everything on the record for the new trial, and it was daunting and tiresome. So what the new investigators wanted to try to do was to take a look at the physical evidence that was collected at the time to see if technology could bring about anything new that they had not previously examined. Now remember, this is the 1980s, so science has advanced to an extent, but not so much that they're going to be able to find DNA on the gloves or clothing. 
But they did have something very important that experts back in 1962 could not quite figure out. The first things that were examined were the boots found on the floorboard of the backseat of Hillary's car. When they were looked at in preparation for the second trial, the shoe print expert noticed something that had been overlooked the first time. Hillary had denied that he walked up to the Miller house, and the argument could have been made that there are lots of farm workers in the area, and many, if not all of them, tended to wear work boots. But the thing about Hillary's boots was there was something about them that was unique. They had been modified. The soles of the boots were the original manufacturer soles from the Wellington Boot Factory, but the original heel had been replaced. It was a repair that Hillary had made because the heel was wearing out quickly. And when he did so, he essentially made this boot print one of a kind. When that boot print was compared to the shoe impression found near the Miller home, they were identical. The soles matched, the custom heel matched, and there were also the same five individual accidental marks found in the sole of Hillary's shoe. Those showed up in the impression in the dirt as well. The tire impressions were also compared again to look for any accidental cuts that may have matched up. And they did indeed match Hillary's tire up with the impressions in the dirt, which also included a distinctive manufacturer defect in the tire. So this took care of any question as to whether or not these impressions in the dirt were made by Hillary or by another random farmer in the area, which had been a part of Hillary's argument to explain away the evidence. But this still only placed Hillary close to the house. It didn't quite put him inside the house yet. However, as the investigators were poring over the transcripts of the first trial, he noticed that one of the detectives stated on the night of the murder that Marlene's mother was asked to vacuum up the carpet in the living room where they believed the abduction took place, and they collected the bag from her vacuum and took it into evidence. When the contents of the vacuum were examined in 1962, most of what they found were the usual things that would come up into a vacuum from carpeting, dust, dirt, fibers, etc. But they also did notice some strange particles. Very, very tiny pieces of trace evidence particles that no one for the life of them could figure out what these little particles were. They simply did not have the technology to try and figure out what they were made of or where they came from. All they could determine at the time were the size, shape, and color of these particulates. Well, those particles found in Marlene's mom's vacuum were still in her case file. So they had those sent to an independent forensics lab in Chicago for further analysis. A forensic microscopist named Skip Palinek was given the task of attempting to identify those particles. Once he looked at the way the particles were shaped, he was able to tell how they were formed. When he put them under his microscope, he recognized them as being paint. Not paint that is applied with a brush, but rather paint that came from a spray can. Each of the particles had cotton fibers that passed through them. And it was because of the way that the paint attached and dried to these cotton fibers that caused them 
to become the ovalish shape that they were. When the paint comes out of an aerosol spray can, they come out in the form of tiny round particulates. If that spray paint is applied to a flat surface, it dries and creates a smooth coat of paint on that surface. But if that spray paint is applied to a fiber, the tiny round particles land and react differently. Once those spherical particles land on a fiber, when it dries, Palinet called it capillary forces that cause the ends of that sphere to draw out long ways along the fiber itself, causing it to go from round to almost a football shape with two pointed ends. So this paint was sprayed onto a fiber. It dried and this fiber was essentially shedding these tiny oval shaped particles all over Marlene's living room carpet. Palinik also identified the elements in the paint as being titanium, lead, and iron. And when the paint's molecular composition was examined, it was determined to be an oil-based paint colored with Prussian blue pigment. These results were charted on a graph by Palinik as well. Now, the question that needs to be answered is where did these particles come from and how did they end up in Marlene's living room carpet? as there was nothing in the house that appeared to have been shedding those types of particles. So they decided to take a chance and look at Hillary's 1953 Plymouth, which, after all those years, was still in the possession of the police department in their tow yard. Amazingly. They brought the car over to the lab to examine the interior of the vehicle. One of the scientists noticed that the inside of the roof of the car was lined with a material made out of cotton. You guys remember back in the old days when your parents or your grandparents' car was getting old and the headliner started sagging and hanging down from the roof inside the car and if you opened the window while you were driving, that thing would be flapping all over the place? By the time they got to Hillary's car, the headliner was nearly completely detached and hanging all over the inside of the car. Well, that cotton material at some point had been painted with the blue spray paint. So when a section of the headliner was pulled off and examined under a microscope, it was revealed that there were thousands of these little oval-shaped blue particles stuck to the headliner. Those tiny blue balls of paint were created by Hillary himself when he decided to spray paint his headliner. And why in the world would someone spray paint the cotton material on the inside of their vehicle like this? Well, my best guess is that it was a cheap and easy way to cover up stains or unsightly water damage or possibly age or discoloration of the headliner, which is usually a light colored material. So the inside of the car was thoroughly vacuumed and the trace evidence picked up by the vacuum was analyzed. Thousands and thousands of those same blue oval paintballs were found all throughout the passenger compartment of the car. So not only were these things stuck to the headliner, they were also being shed throughout the vehicle and presumably all over anyone riding in it. And upon further examination of the particles found in Marlene's living room and the particles found in Hillary's car, they were found to be identical in shape, color, chemical, molecular, and elemental makeup. 
and both used Prussian blue in the makeup of the paint's color. So every time Hillary drove his car, these microscopic paintballs would shed from the headliner and onto his clothing and into his hair. These particles followed Hillary everywhere that he went, and he never realized it, as they weren't visible to the naked eye, or at least they were not distinguishable to anything else that might be on his clothing, like dust or lint. So when Hillary broke into Marlene's home and attacked her, those microscopic paint particles dropped off of him and onto Marlene's living room carpet. Finally, investigators had the evidence that definitively placed Booker Hillary inside the Miller home. And in 1986, when Hillary was tried once again for Marlene's murder, he was convicted based on the new forensic evidence discovered in the reinvestigation into the case. The maximum that he could be sentenced in the case was 25 years to life in prison. When I searched Hillary in California's inmate database, he was listed as having been admitted into the Department of Corrections in 1955, which I believe is related to his first conviction. For Marlene's case, he was arrested and tried in 1962, so some seven years after his first conviction, and had been out less than a year by the time he killed Marlene. It lists his parole date beginning June of 1969, but at that time, he was sentenced to death, so he would not have had a parole date listed. I guess that what that is, is it was revised once he was resentenced in 1986. And that would make sense because within a year of his second conviction, he went up for parole in 1987, but that was denied, due in part to about 17,000 signatures collected protesting his release. Hillary went up for parole again in 1993 and was denied again. He was denied yet again in 2003. And that's the last that I could find anything related to Hillary's parole hearings. I don't know if the media has simply stopped reporting on it or if Hillary has given up. Today, Booker Hillary is 88 years old and is currently housed at the California Healthcare Facility in Stockton, California. Marlene's dad, Walter Miller, died 29 years after his daughter on April 5, 1991, at the age of 77. Her mom, Georgianne Miller, died 42 years after her daughter on October 5, 2004, at the age of 92. Both of them were laid to rest in the Hanford Cemetery, right beside Marlene. There is one last bit of irony in the case of Booker T. Hillary. Over the years, many have accused Hillary of taking advantage of the system, causing Marlene's family a great deal of undue grief on top of the grief he'd already caused them. I tend to disagree with that assessment because our system allows him the right to appeal, especially when faced with a death penalty, as to ensure that he received a fair trial. But at the same time, Hillary's intentions were never to make things easy on the family of the victim, particularly since he had been adamant that he had nothing to do with this crime. So why would he, right? But he definitely did take full advantage of the system and used every possible chance that he had to work it and hoped that something would stick. He wasn't going to go away quietly. 
And you know he has no obligation to and nothing but time on his hands. However, in all of his legal wrangling, Booker T. Hillary would end up becoming his own worst enemy in all of this. Because of his stubbornness or defiance or for whatever reasons he had at the time, when the police department wanted to auction off his 1953 Plymouth shortly after he was convicted back in 1962, Hillary absolutely refused to give the department permission to sell it. As a matter of fact, in order to stop the sale of his vehicle, he filed a motion in federal court suing the county to prevent them from selling the car. They managed to reach an agreement. If Hillary would withdraw his lawsuit against the county, they wouldn't sell it. When I saw this particular bit of information, I couldn't help but smile at the ridiculousness of it all. Because I kept thinking, why, Booker T. Hillary? Why are you insisting that the police department store this big old clunky rust bucket for you? Did he think he was going to win an appeal and get out of prison and drive home in it? I wondered if he owed restitution to the court or to the family. And if the car was sold, then the proceeds would automatically be taken from him and put towards what he owed. And then I thought, maybe this was just his way of going against what the police wanted to do. They wanted to sell his car to rid themselves of the thing. But Hillary was like, nope, I'm not going to agree to anything you all want to do with my stuff. Just hold on to the car for however long it takes. I don't care. Well... Because of his insistence on the police storing his car, Booker Hillary effectively handed them the forensic evidence that would be used years later to convict him. The microscopic pieces of evidence that linked him to the crime. The tiny little bits of paint that nobody would have ever figured out where they came from if Hillary just allowed for the sale of his car to move forward. But not only would all the investigators and scientists and the district attorney and the prosecutor and everybody involved in this case against Hillary would like to thank him for saving that evidence for them, they also have to give credit to Kings County Chief Criminal Deputy at the time, Art Thomas, who was the one who insisted that Marlene's mom vacuum the carpet in the living room of their home where Marlene was attacked, and he kept that evidence as a part of her case file. He knew that someday that the key to placing Hillary inside that home might just be found in that vacuum bag. And that will bring this 129th episode of California Dreaming to a close. I would encourage you to come over to our Facebook discussion group if you haven't done so yet and request to join. It is there that we talk about the cases that we cover. We share our thoughts and opinions, not only about our show, but other podcasts that you listen to, documentaries that you've watched, books that you've read, as well as current news stories, posts about your pets, funny memes. Please come over and share. You can also go over to the show's Facebook page and like that page and leave a review or recommendation. You can also follow us on Twitter at California Pod and Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. 
And this week, I would like to wish a very happy birthday to Tina E., Sarah M., and Louise P. on January 24th, Crystal H. on January 25th, Alfie the Wonder Dog, who is on Instagram with me, Felicia S., and Alice C. on January 28th. I hope you all have a really wonderful birthday. California Dreaming is brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network, a podcast production company on a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to with an amazing roster of shows with content including true crime, history, sports entertainment, gaming, and social media. So visit our website and find all of your favorite episodes of California Dreaming at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You'll also find links to all of our podcasts as well as a direct link to our merchandise store. Again, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again so much for listening. I'm your host, Roseanne. And until next time, sweet dreams. Some of the most heinous murders are the ones you've never even heard of. From Michael Ojibwe and Reach Freaks Media comes Invisible Choir, a new form of investigative true crime storytelling that brings the most depraved and under-investigated crimes to life. They slammed the kid on the ground and stabbing their baby out here in the middle of the They're stabbing their baby? With actual audio from the events, including 911 calls, police interrogations, and confessions. Shot my wife in the temple of her head, and um, I put her in the freezer. I checked on her at night, and I did. We'll take you on an unforgettable emotional journey to the marginalized communities and crime scenes themselves to bring visibility to the unseen. Download Invisible Choir today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.